the most competitive, disruptive, and innovative marketing in the world goes on in politics. There's just nothing that's even close. So when one man dived in headfirst with no more than just a car and tenacious grit, who would have expected the success that he would have had? I only am, have tenacity because I fail so much. What we've moved away from in the world is growth. What are we doing every single day to make to solve problems and make things a little bit better? Philip Stutz operates at a world where it's either innovate and win or be out of business forever. When data seemingly makes your decisions for you, Philip found a method in the madness and saw what the bigger picture could mean for politics and the world. Barack Obama's campaign team created the most innovative marketing campaign in the history of American politics. Donald Trump added a branding mechanism. Do you know what the brand was? Make America Great Again? I'm Mike Keating, and welcome to Zero to Unicorn, where we dive into the lives of the unique visionaries among us that have made a billion dollar impact in the world. Philip has done some incredible things in his career, including being involved with political campaigns all the way to the presidential level. I started off by asking Philip to paint me a picture of the political world he's a part of, highlighting his accomplishments he's made along the way. Yeah, I would, um, I would first of all just say that I owe all of, uh, of my political work to having attention deficit disorder. And uh, the reason being is that, like, I'm uh, 49 years old, and I, um, I'm the first generation of ADD kids. And I, we didn't have ADHD. We had ADD. That was it. That was what they called it back in the 80s. And they put me on drugs, uh, which I don't take anymore. But, they, you know, at the time, because I couldn't, literally couldn't sit through school. I couldn't, I was failing every subject. I was doing it. And ultimately, as I got older and went to college, uh, which was a horrible experience because I couldn't, I'm a horrible student and, and I'm a horrible employee. Um, but ultimately, I only could do things I was super interested in, like something that just excited the hell out of me. And I loved two things growing up, and that was uh, sort of political campaigns. I was just fascinated by how people got elected and college football. That was it. That's all I cared about. And so I knew I was either going to go into politics or into sports. And when I say go into politics, it doesn't mean I'm going to run for office. I would never be one of those people. But I decided I wanted to go work and market politicians. And so, you know, I've, uh, I didn't know what that meant. No one in my family worked for a politician, donated to a politician. No one did anything, but this is kind of what I wanted to do. And so when I graduated college, uh, I, I started working on political campaigns. Um, uh, and eventually, you know, what, what I, first of all, I was a homeless uh, vagabond for about eight years where I literally traveled the country working uh, in certain states, whether it was New Mexico, San Diego, California, South Dakota, Louisiana, where I literally put all my possessions in my car and I went to work for politicians that were running for people that want to run for office. And then... Eventually, I turned that into a media uh, advertising business for politicians. And then, obviously, it built into a corporate marketing agency and a bunch of other things. Wow. Let that sink in for a moment. So, Philip's ADHD is going crazy. And then he spends eight years living out of his car. 
What was that experience like? And how does someone make it through that? I mean, I worked seven days a week. I mean, that's how I made it through. I didn't make any money. Uh, you don't make, I mean, there's not a lot of money there. Unless you're, you know this, unless you're an entrepreneur or a business owner like this, you have a cap. And in politics, it's, when you work on political campaigns, it's not even a cap. It's a minimum wage. I mean, if you looked at, we always laughed when I was working on campaigns and said, if you actually looked at like the hours versus the hourly rate, it would be like 30 cents an hour, maybe even like 10 cents an hour. So there was a three-year window from, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, where I had 21 days off total, including weekends. Um, and you're never going to hear me complain. I loved every minute of it. I was passionate. I woke up every day excited. I was going to fight for things I believed in and people I believed in. And I were, you know, it's kind of like, look, I didn't play sports growing up, but it felt like, you know, I had a, you know, people that were working with me, that, that was a team. And we worked together every single day. We were in a you know, we were fighting every single day and the, the results were not a 10% gain in margin from one quarter to the next. It was win or lose. It was win or die. Because if you put a year of your life into working for a politician to market them to win and they lose, what do you, what is your life worth for a year? You gave your life to something that didn't even win. Imagine if there was the NFL, and I'm sure you're, maybe you're a, uh, a Vikings fan, but imagine you don't have a regular season. You just have the one game a year, a Super Bowl. That's it. And it's two teams. That's it. And they practice for one year. That's it. That's what the stakes were with what we did in politics and still, still exist today. One big game once a year. That is it. With the stakes so clearly high, I had to know what was he thinking. Well, my uh, my first, uh, I've had nine, I've been on nine presidential campaigns. Three winning. The first one was Bob Dole, 1996, against Bill Clinton and his reelection. So that one uh, didn't didn't win. The second one was the best. It was, uh, I worked for Dan Quayle. And, and Dan Quayle was the vice president for people that are younger that may not remember. And he was uh, ostracized for misspelling words and having gaffes, but he was a really great guy. And I, in, in 1999, I, I moved, I had to pay my own way to move to Arizona to work for Dan Quayle, who had no shot at winning a presidential campaign because I didn't, I didn't have any contacts anywhere else and so i just said i don't know i, I gotta make a make a way in this world so i paid uh, uh, my way out to arizona i found this apartment i was pretty broke and the apartment said you got to pay first month last month the deposit that was 2100 dollars total this is in 1999 and i think i had 2200 dollars in my bank account and I walked into my into the campaign on day one. I knew nobody on the campaign, nobody. And my boss walks in the room and says, hey, welcome to town. I said, thanks. He puts this big binder, uh, because back then it was less computer and more big binders. He drops this binder on a table and he said, that's everybody that's ever donated Dan Quayle in the last 20 years of politics. Your job is to cold call 
every single person in this binder and ask them for money and you have to raise a minimum of $10,000 a day for a guy that is not gonna win. And that was my first real foray into presidential politics. And so I became a really good marketer and a really good salesperson because my ass was on the line and I was dead broke. And you know how this is. Like when, when the pressure is on, that's when you get the most resilient, innovative and, and, uh, and that's what I had to do. And so I made it that we started out with 35 people on the campaign. When I left the campaign nine months later, because Dan Quayle dropped out of the race, there were three of us left. Everybody had been let go because they didn't, you know, that they couldn't support that many people, but they kept me because I was the only person I could raise on money. And that I earned a reputation there and that propelled me to a bigger campaign, which was George W. Bush's first campaign in 2000. Fortunately, Philip had a strategy. He saw the bigger picture and he knew that the work he was doing was going to lead to bigger and bigger campaigns. But what is it like having to live that life day in and day out, especially in the face of so much rejection? I, 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 this year, I, at the time, I was 25 years old. All my friends are back in Washington, D.C., going out every night, having fun, living the life. And I'm living alone in Phoenix, Arizona, cold calling people who are hanging up on me and telling me to screw off and all of these different things. Uh, and then there were, obviously there was a lot of people that didn't do that. Right. But, uh, it was different and it was a real, it was, I would tell you, it was probably the most pivotal period of my life because I'm a very blessed and privileged person. Um, my father did it, uh, had to pay his way through college, had to do the, do into the army to have his college paid for. And he made a vow that he, that he was never going to allow his kids to pay for college. And so I started post-college at zero, right? I didn't start it at negative 127,000. I started at zero, which what a blessing. And I didn't know that at the time. I didn't have any perspective. But when I got into the workforce and I realized all of my friends had debt, you know, and, and I had, had it pretty good, that, then I realized I had an obligation to work my ass off and build something because I, had an, I, I was given something most people will never be given. And that was to start my post-college life at zero. This actually proved to be the pivotal point in Philip's trajectory, propelling him to a much bigger campaign, the George Bush campaign. Yeah, I mean, I um, uh, I, I moved back to D.C. after uh, leaving Dan Quayle's campaign, started working for George W. Bush. I, I was raising money for him as well. Um, and then about uh, two months before the election, uh, the campaign came to me and said... Uh, we we need help in the state of New Mexico. Would you be willing to move to New Mexico and help us get out the vote, market you know the the candidate basically to uh, voters on the ground, whether that be through phone calls, door to door uh, efforts, sort of the the blocking and tackling of politics. And I I thought that would be the coolest thing ever. So I said yes. I moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico. I lived in the Las Cruces Hilton for two months. And, um, and you know, we, we started, we had, this is so crazy. It would never happen these days, but there was literally nothing going on in the state of New Mexico for the Bush campaign with two months to go in the election, a state that he ended up, I think losing, we lost that race by like, 
um, I think it was 600 votes out of 300,000 or 600,000 cast, something like that. It was something nuts. It was only a few electoral votes, like five. And so they put all their resources in states like Florida, which I ended up going and being on that recount team um, for after that. But, but, but I, I, um, in the, in the two months, you know, I had um, Condoleezza Rice fly in. I spent like a, a day with her, taking her all around New Mexico to meet with voters and market the the campaign. Um, there were like at least six different governors that came in as surrogates that that I got to have one on one time and spend days with. Uh, Al Gore and and the uh, the guitarist Santana came in and stayed at the hotel we were in and campaigned and like. I just got this upfront view of like crazy on the ground, like guerrilla tactics of marketing through that experience. And, um, and, and, you know, it was crazy. And we, again, uh, there was no apparatus when I showed up two months ago. Now, you know, I, I mean, I would tell you that like, you know, the apparatus starts for, you know, the day after election day or, two years before like it's insane that there was nothing there um and and we lost and there there was a great lesson from that and what happened was and this is kind of i talk about this in 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 the book it again i'll do a history lesson because most people probably either weren't aware or alive or whatever during this time but like um we did not have a sort of a a real campaign to get out the vote in 2000. It was thrown together at the last minute, like I just told you. And so the architects of the Bush uh, organization was a guy named Carl Rove. And Carl Rove said, we're never going to do that again. So literally the day after the election, which, by the way, no one remembers, it went to a recount in Florida. It was decided, you know, there are, I think, 7 million people voted in Florida, and it was, came down to, like, you know, 200 or 700 votes or something like that that's what decided the presidency the supreme court ruled you couldn't count any more votes it was over and bush won and so carl rove said never gonna have we're gonna that's never gonna happen again and he designed this thing called uh this national 72 hour get out the vote plan and uh they recruited me to at least go out and test it in 2002 so i went out and helped run a U.S. Senate race out in South Dakota. Again, moved all my stuff, moved to South Dakota, and uh, and spent a year out in South Dakota. Then spent time in Louisiana on another Senate race, and then uh, then moved uh, full time to to Louisiana and ran a, a governor's race. A guy named Bobby Jindal, who eventually ran for president uh, in 2016, and. Um, when that camp, when the Jindal governor race was over in 2003, uh, they called me up and said, "We want you to be the national get out the vote director, 72-hour director for the for the campaign, the first one ever that was ever created." And so that's what led to the 2004 presidential campaign. But what was it that Philip did so differently? The first time he was out there, there wasn't much structure. What was it that Philip did that helped separate what he was doing on the campaign trail compared to the other? It was the first campaign, and I didn't, I, I implemented this. I didn't come up with this. Um, I got, Carl Rove came up and said, we've got, he, the, everybody on that in the senior White House uh, in 2002 read a book called Moneyball. And it was how to use data and analytics to get better efficiencies 
and have advantages over your competition. And so they were so enamored with it that they made us all read Moneyball. And then they, we started implementing, we called this, it was called micro-targeting, never been done. No political campaign in the history of American politics until 2004 had ever done anything like this. We literally bought consumer data and started making profiles of voters based on what magazines they've subscribed to, what cars they had, all these things. We, we literally built modeled audiences, which is something we do every day in, in marketing. And it had never been done before. And it was the most innovative political campaign in the history of American politics because um, at the time that we were running against uh, John Kerry and uh, John Edwards, uh, and they didn't do anything like that. And Bush won re-election. He only won it by one state, the state of Ohio. He won the state of Ohio by 120,000 votes. So had 60,000 votes switched on election day in Ohio, we would have lost. But because we had this uh, micro-targeting data and analytics uh, um, campaign going on in about 16 states, including Ohio, we won, we won, the, pre we won the re election of presidency. Hey, it's Mike. Let's beat the banks at their own game. Traditional banks don't have great interest rates, but they charge businesses like Norhart higher rates, and they keep all the profits. Why don't we cut out the middleman and connect directly, thus leaving more for both of us? Invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and get more than you ever could at a bank? This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. I'm no political analyst, but when you have this incredibly fine-tuned data on voters, it forces me to ask the question, how can that data be used to more effectively win those extra votes? Because everything is, is how you build relationships. And so if you're gonna contact a voter, and say, George W. Bush is pro-life, and that voter is pro-choice, you just turn that voter, you spent money to turn them to your competitor. Think about that in the business world, right? And so are you gonna spend your marketing dollars to push your customer or client to your competitor? Because that's what happens if you don't know what the voter cares about. So I am complete I, I i love the politicians that i've worked for but i'm completely obsessed with the voter because it's about empathetic marketing it's about understanding what they care about and then delivering a message on those things so what we were able to do in 2004 is identify one two three issues we knew they were super super hot on do you think we talked about anything other than those issues from that point forward in our marketing to those specific voters? No, that's all we talked about. And the internet, marketing on the internet really wasn't a thing in 2004. So this was done through phone calls, through door-to-door -door knocks, and through direct mail. So if you got a direct mail, as glossy mail pieces you get during campaign season, it'd be on the issue we knew that voter was, was going to vote on. And so... That's what we did. And again, I would tell you that was the most innovative 
marketing campaign in the history of American politics, and that was in 2004, until 2008, when Barack Obama took what we did smartly, his team did, they took it, modeled exactly what we did in 2004, but then they entered, they added in Facebook and social media platforms for the first time ever. And in 2008, Barack Obama's campaign team created the most innovative marketing campaign in the history of American politics, even bigger than what we did in 04. And then they added on and optimized for it in 2012. And then in, and then in 2016, you had Donald Trump, who brought the same micro-targeting model that we built in 2004. He brought in all the social media front. And he added one other contact that no one else had done uh, that ha had done to the level that Trump did in 2016. Hate him or love him, I don't care. I'm just talking about this is uh, about marketing. Was he added a branding mechanism? Do you know what the brand was? Make America Great Again. Yeah. And so when you thought of Trump. You saw uh, disruption, make America great again, great branding, great data and micro-targeting and great use of social media. Those three forces won him that election. And, and frankly, that's considered the most innovative marketing campaign in the history of American politics. So what we've seen is this massive disruption in our marketplace from 2004 to 2008 to 2016. Now, people ask me about, and I talk about this in the book, but they asked me about uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden beat Trump, but it wasn't, he didn't out market, I mean, it wasn't a, a great marketing campaign. They just hit him in the basement. But why? Because the data said if Trump doesn't have anybody to fight every day, he will just implode him on himself. And that's what the data said. So they said, great, we're going to hide Joe in the basement. And he's not going to be able to engage Trump. And so Trump, you know, ran his campaign, didn't have really anybody to fight with, and the election happened. But that wasn't the most innovative campaign, even though they did all the same things that we've talked about. They followed the data. They initiated the data. And by the way, Trump's team did the same thing. They followed the data. They did. So this is the most competitive, disruptive, innovative marketing in the world goes on in politics. There's just nothing that's even close. And so, you know, having a media firm in the space and representing presidential candidates, Senate candidates, governors, congressmen and women, all those things, I said, man, it feels like businesses could use this. And in the same way, Mike, that you had disrupted the construction industry, in a way that the old cogs are like, how dare he come in and do things different and save people money? How dare you do something like that? That's the same trajectory and path I've done in the marketing world. The old marketing people in the corporate world are like, no, 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 no. We've been making the same amount of money doing the same things forever and ever, duping and tricking our clients in certain ways. And my point is, is that there is a different way of looking and doing things that makes businesses grow exponentially. And it, for me, it comes from the most ruthless industry in the world where the only outcome is win or you're out. You're out of a job, you're out of business, you're out. 
And the last thing I'll say is in politics, everything is on a publicly available database. So everybody that I'm competing with to get a client in politics, so other Republican media firms or whatever, they all know if I win or lose. When they go pitch the next candidate against me, are they going to use my losses against me? Are they going to cut my legs out from under me? Are they going to do whatever it takes? Yes. So we either innovate and win or we're out of business forever. And there is nothing in the marketing world like that. So incredibly powerful. You know, one thing I've always disliked, frankly, is the marketing industry. Often it feels like so many people in that space are there just to take your money, but they don't necessarily provide real value or insight. It frustrates me to the point that I kind of have closed down for a while to even talk to marketing companies. But there's a huge difference between the average person trying to just do Google ads and someone like Philip, who truly understands the depths of psychology necessary to really drive marketing home. So I quizzed Philip in the new AI world, is there a place for the human component? Or does AI have our days numbered? Yeah, everybody, the, the great buzzword. And by the way, every marketer says AI right now. Oh, we're AI, we do AI, we do AI, right, whatever, right? But my point is, is that every ad you see from a $50 million company right now or above or a Fortune 200 company, I'm talking about if you're streaming TV um, or... You know, you're watching a digital ad on about faith, like Facebook runs an ad on, you know, and you see it. They didn't, they didn't have a marketing firm write the copy. They had an AI write the copy. And so what, why is because the AI has aggregated everything that's ever been converted, bought, sold on the internet all the way until about five minutes ago. And so what happens in the marketing world, this is what we do. We invested four years ago in all this AI stuff way before it was hot and excited. And what we found was we helped write copy for a client on their ads. We put it into the AI. The AI kicks back and edits the thing out and says, don't use this word, use this word, because that word will convert more than the other, the one you wrote. If you aren't doing that as a business owner, you're literally, just like I talked about earlier, you're making ads that send people to your competitor. And so we, you know, work to understand what we, our job is. I, I always say this, my, I'm in the risk elimination business. My job is to eliminate risk. That's how you grow in marketing a lot of times. Because if I can eliminate all the risk, then all you have left is the upside to grow. And so whether it's uh, doing massive data um, reports and, and overlays on your customer or client list or building on an audience, understanding how they think and feel what their values are in life, and then delivering those messages, and then creating that, that content that's run through an AI and is, is tweaked so that maybe instead of converting 50 leads or 1,000 leads, you convert 1,500 leads. 
right? It's so many micro changes and decisions that are going in. And what happens is, again, 99% of business owners, they want to focus on their business. They don't want to market. Like they understand it's a, it's a nest. They, they think it's a necessary evil. Uh, Darren Hardy says, you know, all successful businesses know that 90% of success is their marketing. And so that's the key, right? So they get, they go, ah, I don't want to deal with this. I just want to run my construction company and build things and, and are they in, in construction? And that's what I want to do. And I got this marketing thing over here. Here's $5,000 a month. Go, go help me. And then those people don't know what they're doing. They screw it all up or. Maybe they do know what they're doing, but you don't understand as the business owner that you're not going to spend $100 and get $1,000 in return. It doesn't work like that. There's not one company in America that has blown up that didn't lose money on marketing before they made money on marketing. If you don't know the lifetime value of your customer like that, and, and uh, we worked with a, a huge apparel company and they made the mistake. They were like, they were getting $92 on lifetime value of a customer and we got it to $192, but because they, on their campaign, they spent $10,000 and they said, we, we want a hundred, I think I wrote about this, but they said, uh, we want a hundred thousand dollar return on our $10,000 ad spend. And I said, okay, where did that come from? And they said, we wrote it in a spreadsheet. And I go, clearly, but like, where do you derive that number from? Because there's a math problem here. The math problem is, how much does it cost to get a, a, a customer or a client? How much do they spend? How much, where do they keep, how, what's their lifetime value now? How, what other services could you offer? Well, you've got to put together a math problem here. This is a, this is an equation. This isn't, I have an Excel spreadsheet and I just threw a number in there because that's what I want. Like that's what people did 30 years ago. And so your, your, your marketing team has to solve a math problem for you. And you have to be comfortable with the fact that this is where we're going to go and it's not going to be tomorrow or in three weeks, it's the next year and let's go build this together. And that's what happens, right? So there's this yin and this yang, this tug of war going on between marketers, which by the way, many of them are horrible. And business owners are like, I can't take these people anymore. And they don't, then they don't trust anybody. And then the right people come in. And they want to do the right thing. And the business owner has no patience for it. And they get rid of them. And then they're back in this perpetual circle of failure. And so what I'm trying to do is obviously just like utilize an innovative strategy of how we run political campaigns and win for candidates and apply that into businesses because there is no other marketing company in the world that runs the kind of marketing campaigns that we run. None. And every client we worked with that has been committed to our process has grown their bottom line, every single one. And there have been a lot of businesses that have come into our funnel and quit halfway because they don't have the patience to do this the right way. That's their prerogative, but that's the difference between being committed and being interested. That's the difference between being committed and interested. And that's a very powerful differentiator worth remembering. You know, one of the great things that Philip talks about in his book that was particularly insightful for me was the customer insight study. Here, I asked Philip to help me understand that on a deeper level. 
So we have a partnership with the largest data collection, analytics, and AI company in America. We've had it for five years. We're the only marketing company in America with it, with this partnership. So we have access to 240 million American consumers, 550 million connected devices. We track um, 10 billion, or excuse me, a billion searches a day and 10 billion purchasing decisions every day. That's our database. And so we are able to take a business and overlay their customers or clients and then grab their IP address, even in this world of uh, Apple pulling IPs away and everything else, we've got we've got all their information. We've had it for 15 years now. We built it. So we still are able to track all of these people. Now, the, the TV streaming companies are giving us their data and letting us put cookies on their stuff. So like we've gone around, Google's still allowing us to do what we need to do. And then we can tell a business owner everything they've ever wanted to know about their customer from the social media platforms they're on in a chronological order and how much they use them. So wouldn't that be interesting? Because we've got a lot of clients that spend a lot of money on certain uh, social media platforms and they're not being seen by their customers because their customers aren't going to those platforms. Uh, I'll give you, let me give you an example. I'll give you an example. Um, we, we work with a, uh, an office chair company, a big national office. They're actually, they were on Shark Tank and everything. And they came to us and they said, um, we, you know, we got to double the company in the next like two years. So what, what do we need to do? What do we need to know about our customers? And I said, well, how, how much are you spending money? How, what, what are you spending the most of your marketing dollars on right now? And they said, Facebook. And I said, how much? And they said, 85% of our ad dollars are Facebook. And I said, why? And they said, because we hired a Facebook marketing agency. And I said, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense, but why, how do you know your customers are there? And they're like, well, we don't. They just told us to spend money there. And I said, well, let's go look. So we overlaid all their customers online. We tracked them for about a month. We can actually, we track them, we track their movements and cur their current movements, but we're actually able to go back 90, 120 days to their movements over those that period of time too. And we produce a 75 page report that tells you their top three values in life of their customer, the social platforms are on a chronological order, the magazines they read, the digital publications they read, the show, the specific shows they watch on, on, uh, on streaming. On and on and on. I mean, I can go on for days. This report is would blow your mind if you saw it, okay? So we found something really interesting. Facebook was the fourth best performing social media platform for their customers. So they were spending 85% of their ad dollars on the fourth best social media platform. Again, let's go back to what I talked about earlier. This is a money ball game. It's a math equation. Well, who does that? I Now, I would... My, my advice when I, when we worked with them was like, I wouldn't say cancel Facebook, but do you need to spend 85% of your time? Maybe think of it like a pie graph. How much needs to be allocated to each program? Well, what we found was, guess, do you, uh, I'll get uh, this, this is a trick question. You're not going to get it right. But what was the number one social media platform for this office chair company? It was Pinterest because women had gone back into the workforce over COVID and they were working from home and they were looking for a comfortable office chair online. That's what they were searching for. They had never advertised on Pinterest. They wanted to figure out how to double their company. We figured it out. Now we can go spend money. We've eliminated their risk and we can go spend money for them to market their business on Pinterest and 
a thousand other places that we found in the data. That's just one specific example. But that's what we're trying to do here. And that's what you've got to do as a business owner if you want to be successful in marketing. Hey, it's Mike. Passive income is one of this year's hottest buzzwords. But what is it? Well, passive income is when the elite make money and the rest of us sleep. Here at Norhart, we decided to open up this opportunity to everyone by giving you the chance to invest with us and earn fantastic interest rates without doing a thing. To learn more, visit norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com and click on invest. So if you're looking to grow your returns, then why not join Norhart Invest today and see what you can build towards. This is an offering by Norhart Invest. Investments can only be made through the Norhart Invest website. For more information, including the offering circular, please visit norhart.com forward slash invest. One of the things that Philip talks about a lot in his book is cultivating a relationship with customers over time. As he explains in his book, customers are not going to buy in their first viewing of an ad. But how does Philip feel about this? And how does he go about cultivating customer relationships in a meaningful way? Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a good example. So in 2018, in the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis was running for governor. You may have heard of Ron DeSantis. He may have made some headlines the last few years. Uh, he was running against a guy named Andrew Gillum, who was the mayor of Tallahassee. Andrew Gillum was up by 10 points with about 90 days to go in the campaign. We got brought in, my firm, and we ran this data, and we found out that there was an issue that Gillum had a vulnerability on, which was education. He wanted to, they, they, in the state of Florida, they have charter schools, they have voucher programs, they have a lot of school choice. And there are a lot of African-American uh, families, Hispanic families, that have taken advantage of scholarships to go to private schools and get out of failing public schools. And it was a hot issue for them, number one issue. And we had Andrew Gillum on tape saying he was going to eliminate uh, voucher schools and charter schools and school choice in the state of Florida. So we decided we know and we know how to get this thing. And so we ran, uh, we created a website. We went through this five-step marketing system that I write about in my book. But we went, we created this website with the ad. We then we ran ads showing the video of Andrew Gillum uh, talking about how he's going to end school choice in the state uh, for low-income, mostly minority families. And then we ended up doing what's called a geofarming campaign. It was the largest geofarming campaign in the history of American politics. But basically, we were able to go... It's, you know, heard of geofencing where you can put like an imaginary boundary around something and target ads like during a conference. Right? I can go back two years from, uh, from, from today and do the geofencing and target people that were there on a specific two years ago and run ads on them. And so we were able to geofarm every charter school in the state of Florida. And we were able to extract out delivery drivers and things like that, but just deliver the ads. We had about um, 110,000 African-American moms that we had identified in, those ge in that geofarming campaign. We delivered that ad that we made 30, they, they, the, the ad was seen 3 million times. It was not public. It was run as an ad to a very specific audience. So on average, that voter saw that ad 30 times. Ron DeSantis was down 10 points with 90 days to go. He wins by 30,000 votes out of like 9 million 
the Wall Street Journal said school choice moms uh, put Ron DeSantis over the top. 90,000 African-American women voted for Ron DeSantis in 2018 when he ran for governor. At the same race, a guy named Rick Scott was running for U.S. Senate. He got 30,000 African-American female votes. So we got 60,000 more African-American female votes in that race. Ron won by 30,000, 33,000 votes. And a year and a half after that election, Andrew Gillum was caught in a hotel room in Miami with gay hookers uh, smoking meth. That was almost the governor. And, oh, he's married with a family. And we had COVID. So that guy almost governed the state I live in during COVID, who's a meth addict. That's the stakes that we work in every day. So that's how we utilize that data to be effective and to make a difference and change what we're doing. And so now we do that same thing for businesses because there's a lot on the line for entrepreneurs right now. The world is very disruptive. It is the most disruptive moment in, in, in human history, if you really think about it. And you have a chance to get this right, or you're going to be out of business in the next five to 10 years if you don't follow this certain track, whether it's in your business or in your marketing. And I'm just in the marketing sphere, so I'm an advocate on that side. That's truly incredible. Philip pulled a rabbit from a hat. Of course, he did it in the most data-savvy way possible in modern American politics. But this goes to show the difference between an average person's approach to a problem and a visionary's approach to the same dilemma. Now, I'm going to take a step back to the 2004 campaign with Bush. I wanted Philip to expand on what was going on during that time and what were some of the bigger challenges he faced. Uh, scandals, um, because scandals can take a one issue voter and change them immediately. Right. So, uh, well, what I mean by that, um, in 2000, George W. Bush was winning by about three or four points going into the final 72 hours of the election. And then a story came out that he had a DUI in the 1970s. And he had been arrested and it had been sort of swept under the rug. Now, in today's day and age, people would laugh that off. Like, okay, some guy had a DUI 25 years ago. Who cares? But back then it was a big freaking deal. Big. George Bush was winning with by three to four points uh, with three or four, with three days to go in the election. He, he lost the popular vote in 2000 to George, to Al Gore. And, you know, we were up, I think three or four points in Florida and he won, you know, by 700 votes in Florida. So those are the kind of things that throw everything up in the air and change everything. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. Well, that's a great perspective. Of course, I had to probe a little deeper. I wanted the full picture. Where was Philip on election day? What did he do? What did he think about? So I was in the war room. Uh, we were tracking these 18 target states. Um, I have uh, uh, a framed uh, picture of memorabilia next to me over here. 
and it's a it's a note card of the early returns from that day and we were getting clobbered in the early returns the 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 exit polling had come in we were getting beat in every state and we thought oh my god we're gonna lose um and we were directing our field teams in all the states you know of precincts that weren't getting votes out enough and how do we you know get you know start making calls in and getting uh, voters out to the polls in certain places that we weren't seeing our numbers hit. And we were, we were monitoring and, and it every, you know, every minute of the day, but we won. <laughs> the exit polling was all wrong. Um, but it was pretty, it was, it was stressful. And I mean, yeah, I didn't sleep for, I don't know, 36, 48 hours. Like, you know, we were just in that, we were literally in a conference room for 36, 48 hours. Didn't leave except to go pee. I mean, it was late at night. I think it was like 11 or 12 and you know, the state, everything came down to the state of Ohio. I talked about this earlier and, um, when it fell or, you know, went and it was called, uh, Bush one, it was over. And, uh, it was, you know, it was a pretty amazing moment for me. That night was really special because, um, I'd worked for a guy named John Thune in South Dakota. Uh, he was, uh, he, um, he won his U S Senate race that night. John, uh, Bobby Jindal, who had, I'd worked with on his governor's race had, uh, run for Congress in 2004 and he won his congressional seat that night. And then George W. Bush won his reelection. And so for me, it's probably the, the best night I've ever had professionally because all the people I've ever worked for were now in office. And, you know, you feel like you, you helped lay a foundation for a lot of that or, or a huge part of that. I mean, think about where life started for Philip, this kid with ADHD, to now living this extraordinary life. When Philip thinks about the impact he has had within the political spectrum, I asked him to look back and give us his insight into this trajectory. And more importantly, I asked him to share some of the bigger lessons he has learned on his incredible journey. Service to others and growth. Um, I think what we've moved away from in the world is growth. And what I mean by that is not 10x or whatever it is, but like, what are we doing every single day to make, to solve problems and make things a little bit better? Um, I'm a, I'm a miserable person if I'm not growing. And so whether that's, you know, in my marriage as a dad, um, whether it's in my business, um, whether it's just in the stuff I like to do outside of work, um, it's not goal oriented. A lot of it's goal oriented, but I mean, it's not about that. It's about having something to aim for, look forward to, and give you purpose every single day. As you can probably tell in this interview, Mike, I am purpose-driven, but I think the purpose comes from growth. That I'm trying, I want to grow. I don't want to stay stagnant. The The thought of me, um, you know, sitting around watching TV makes me want to throw up. Like I, I like I watch shows with my wife at night, but I'm talking about like on a weekend, like watching golf all day or something like that. No, like I can't do that. Um, I, I I have to be working towards the things that I really am passionate about, and that as an ADD kid, 
that gives me juice every day. So I think it's purpose, but I think purpose is through growth. And through that growth, you learn to serve other people. You learn to give more than you take. You learn so many other lessons. And I just think it's sort of, um, I just think it's a, it's a North star for me. You know, one of the big themes we're talking about this season is tenacity. And Philip certainly exudes that. You can hear that passion and energy just from listening. But what does tenacity mean to Philip? And how has that played out in his own life? I only am, have tenacity because I fail so much. I, I mean, I fail every day, all the time. Uh, I fail as a husband. I fail as a father. No, they're not like massive failures, but you know, they're screw ups, you know? Um, and every time in my life that I think I've got it licked is when the universe calls me back to reality. And so the, the tenacity of, I wouldn't even say it's tenacity as much as it's resiliency. And I think that's the key. Another key to life is how resilient you are in the face of failure, in the face of things not going your way. And I, I'm not going to say this. It sucks. Like there's nothing fun about things not working out. There's nothing fun about, you know, I, let, let me give you an example. My political ad agency, it's an eight figure company. Okay. Does really well. For six months, every two years, from November of an even year until about May of an odd year. So when the election ends, till about six months after that, there's no business. And so you talk about volatility. You talk about um, having to save money that you make in order to just fund six months and make sure people have jobs and they get raises at the end of the year. And you talk about how hard that is when you're me is almost 50 years old. And like, you know, like I don't take salary some years in that six month period. So people get paid. Well, it's going to come back. I know it's going to come back, but it's still a risk. And so when you've done that long enough, it's a muscle of resiliency or maybe it's tenacity that I believe, you know, is a better way to make a more successful life. After that book came out, I think we had the first 33 leads that came in. I converted zero into clients. And I didn't know how to sell or position or message in, in an empathetic way that the business owner said, this guy hears and sees me. I was just, this is, don't do this, don't do that, hire us. And they're like, huh? No, you're like, coming to me like 50 things. Like, Jesus Christ, you're not even listening to me. So I had to learn to settle down in, in the same things I'm preaching over and over again, understand what the voter feels. Like. I had to, literally, I wasn't even doing that, right? And so I had to learn, you know, and, and really take a step back and think about what, if, if someone comes in the door, what's important to them? What do they need to see? What are their goals? What is success? How do they define success? Not to, how do I define success? It always goes back to the customer or the client and what they want. And then we have to deliver to that. And once I understood that, the shift happened and we built an eight figure business on the corporate markings that we worked with 
uh, NASCAR, NBA teams. Uh, we worked with uh, professional tennis, professional hockey. We worked with Tony Robbins, Grant Cardone. We worked, I mean, like we worked with some massive, massive businesses and people. And none of that would have happened if I didn't pivot and realize I was really failing and I needed to change and I needed to see what I was doing wrong and take what I love about Philip's story is so many people hit failure and they think that must mean that they are a failure. And then they stop. But what Philip saw in a failure was recognition. Philip recognized that, yes, I may be failing, but where others stop, he saw an opportunity to pivot, which has ultimately led to tremendous success. You know? One of the things I find really interesting is how Philip has been talking about the political landscape and the campaigns that have drastically improved because of innovation. This got me thinking, what will the next most innovative political campaigns look like? We're going through that change right now. And a lot of it has to do with Chad GPT. And, and when I say Chad GPT, it's, it's sort of a, an amalgam of everything. Um, but I think AI is changing everything. I think it's the most disruptive thing since Google. And when, um, the kind of, you know, the, um, you know, we were talking about this earlier about how, uh, if you see an ad right now, it's been, uh, edited and optimized by an AI for, for better performance. And if you're not doing that, then you have a competitive disadvantage. And so we are start, starting to see that in a major way on political campaigns right now. And so I, it's still TBD, but I, I feel like that's uh, how that is optimized, how that technology changes and is adapted into that political world. That's going to be fascinating for me to, to be a part of. There's no doubt about that. I mean, that again, this is where I go, you know, uh, I have all this data. Uh, you know, it's funny. I have about, on average, in my database, we have about ten to 12,000 data points per American consumer. Uh, Facebook has 85,000 data points per user. Google, I think, has 65 million data points per user. So they, you know, Google, which owns YouTube, are using that to, there's a lot of things that you get out of using their services, but they are also not using it to the best of intentions, whether it's um, censoring a lot of stuff, um, making decisions on what you see um, that, you know, may sway you or change your opinion or things like that because you're only seeing one side of an argument there, there are a lot of different ways that it's being used uh, in a very manipulative way um, probably say the same thing for Facebook I have an obligation to use it for empathy and to, I mean when I say empathy I mean it like this if I know Mike that I'm going to target you to buy chewing gum and I know you love winter fresh bubble gum um 
then I'm going to target you and have an ad on you that speaks to you. It's, it's not to trick you. Um, it is to understand that you may want to know that there's this great bubble gum out there that you've never tried. And I'd like to get it in your hand. And I, I think people are going to have to ethically say, what is my choice with the way the world's going? Am I going to use this and try to do good with it? Or am I going to use this and take advantage of people with it? And, and I'm scared and nervous that far more people are doing it to take advantage of people. And that worries me. It concerns me for sure. Finally, I asked Philip, as you look toward the next couple of decades of your life, where are you headed? What do you want to do next? Well, we're building, I mean, we've got five companies now. I've actually moved into my holding company. I manage all my CEOs. Um, I assume that we're going to build that into probably a nine, 10 figure business. Um, where that goes from there, I don't know. Um, and, you know, if I'm really, to be honest, I don't know on the business side right now. What I do know is that I want to be the best dad to my daughter and I want to be the best husband to my wife and I need better balance in all the things I do. And frankly, I've lived a, a life where my needs went last um, and I, I never did anything for myself for 48 years. And so over the last year, uh, I've started trying to understand what, what do I want out of life? And I'm still seeking that and figuring that out. Philip doesn't talk the talk of a visionary. Instead, he walks tall. He found the meaning hidden in the data and implemented it to the nth degree. Again, with the same level of tenacity and passion, I'm repeatedly finding in her visionary guests. Philip took the road less traveled in service of the greater good and now paved new ways in how both politics and now businesses understand their audiences. I didn't realize how much Philip's work touched upon aspects of my own work, but now I know. Thank you for listening. Keep following us on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to recommend this to a friend, we'd like that too.